Happy New Year! Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen, sat next to Andy Wood. Happy 2017! Happy 2017 to you too. There's a new lamp. Oh There's yeah, we can actually fixture. see we in can here. see each other clearly mm-hmm. now in the room. We're fresh off our first trivia victory of the year. We can have. we talk about that in the podcast? Is I that bad we can talk. I, we've talked about trivia before on the show. Sat next to us is our guest, who was part of the victorious trivia team. I would team. say instrumental in, yeah. the, in the victory. Yeah, and, and a, an old friend of mine, a comic I started out with in Britain, who happens to just be here on holiday, Mr. Steve Hall. Hello. I am flying back to the UK tonight. Yeah, you're literally, this is yeah, your last day in is, town. Yeah, and, but what a lovely way, the final proper night to, to slam the trivia. I, yeah. It was a crushing victory. Well, we tell the full story of our usual... We, we had too many people in our usual group, so we had to split into two teams. This has happened before. I think we might have even bragged about this. It's getting a little bit obnoxious. <laughs> but it hasn't happened where the smaller of the two teams won, has That's it? That's true. I don't think. So we were at a slight disadvantage getting only four of the nine of us. And I was the only American, and you never know how American-centric the... There was one quite American-centric round. Yeah, yeah. It was match the holidays to the things they originally were or the things that coincide with them. And we beat former guests Although of there the was show- in that list uh, New Year's Eve and Hogmanay. Oh, I'd never heard of that. A non-Brit yeah. would struggle to place. And I'd never heard of uh, Looper Kellia, but we guessed that that was related to Valentine's Day for some Yeah, I'd still never heard and of And Wolves. That. There we go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we beat former guests TJ Chambers, uh, Riley Newton, Charlene Conley. Was there anybody else? And it was very close. Brian it was Cook. Brian Cook's been on the show. Yeah, we beat. There were two. It was two. There were two points in it as well. It there was, were. It came down. Oh yeah, and the wire. two teams came for, came in first and second, which was also validating that even divided our t- our big team still defeated all the rest of them. Yeah. Now it's getting braggy. I'm, this we is not a good way braggy. to start. We narrowly lost the drinking <laughs> round. That was the uh, to a different team. But we tied. We got nine of the ten sting songs. Right. Yeah, and then this the, is this is too much. This is too much, yeah. is is too much trivia. Now. <laughs> okay. Hey, Steve. Uh, we like to ask our guests this before we get into the stories. Uh, what, if anything, is your background in science? Uh, my background is minimal. I uh, I did I studied philosophy and theology at university, and okay. I dropped. So, sort of, if this podcast were happening in around the 16th century, absolutely, I'd be bang on it. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be like, you'd be at the absolute forefront. You'd if be pioneering. This, if if Rene Descartes was sat here right now. <laughs> Uh, I would get on with him like a house on fire, although he would be furious that I have a degree and I remember almost nothing about his teachings. Do <laughs> well, you think pamphlets were the podcasting of that century? <laughs> <laughs> the Gutenberg Press was the first yeah. podcast. And like, it really helps to get into other people's pamphlets to get your pamphlets out yeah. there. <laughs> I think like, common sense was probably the WTF of its time, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know enough about... Isn't that, uh, wasn't that a p- pivotal thing in the American Revolution? Is that... Was it Thomas Paine, Common Sense, this pamphlet they published? That, oh, quite uh, possibly. I'm having to Google I this my American history. Why would you know this? It's American history. But Co- at the time common, they were British. Common Sense right? went viral. Yeah, yeah. You are right. Common Sense is a pamphlet written by Thomas Paine in 1775 to 76, advocating independence from Great Britain to people in the 13 colonies. Written in clear and persuasive prose, Paine marshaled moral and political arguments to encourage common people in the colonies to fight for egalitarian government. Wow. That's Public- like the, the first 50 time. minutes were always him rambling about like his neurotic <laughs> yeah. daily life. For but then God. it was worth listening through to get to the meat of the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like the last time a pamphlet was relevant until Chinese menus came along. <laughs> it was a couple, a couple centuries of stagnation <laughs> in the pamphlet industry. <laughs> that was definitely its heyday. I'd say, I'd say museums... 
<laughs> Although actually having said that, I've always and, and taken the pamphlet, walked around the entire museum and then put the pamphlet back yeah, into the yeah, slot yeah. on red. I would say zip lines, big pamphlet, uh, zip line pamphlets. What is You've never been to like a, a any, it feels like any tourist country has zip lines and for those zip lines you have pamphlets at every hotel. I, you can't oh, picture yeah. like, a, like a hotel, a kiosk full of pamphlets about zip lines. I, I, would, I would say they're more flyers though than full on pamphlets. What's the definition? Does it have to fold to be a pamphlet? I don't know. I don't. I wonder if Thomas Paine's was like a trifold or what? Yeah. The- and did he whack it in a hotel lobby <laughs> <Yeah>. while <laughs> people are waiting for their bags? Yeah. They're waiting to check in. Oh, what's this? Why is yeah. everyone who stayed in bed and breakfast calling for a revolution? Yeah. <laughs> Um, that was uh, that's right. I forgot Howard Johnson was a pivotal part of the revolution. And, uh, <laughs> it was published anonymously, by the way, oh. on January tenth, seventeen seventy six, at the beginning of the American Revolution, and became an immediate sensation. So he he Pamphlet was he was the original Twitter egg as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you put your name to it, Thomas, <laughs> too much of a coward hiding behind anonymity. And particularly because it could have. Like if if his if he'd have had a handle, it could have, it could have just been bring T pain. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Holy shit! Thomas Paine was the first T pain. <laughs> Holy shit! How would how did that never? <laughs> I always assumed that T pain has named himself after. after t- <laughs> what? Okay, if a listener out there has auto tune uh, software on their computer, if you could do an auto tuned reading of the contents of the pamphlet Common Sense, <laughs> that, they, that could go viral, I think. <laughs> T Pain's Common Sense. There is a Yahoo Answers that I'm just about to click on that says, Did T Pain get his name from Thomas Pain? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I can't believe no one's done something. Do something with that, listeners, if it hasn't already happened. <laughs> Apparently, no. It is short for Tallahassee Pain. Uh, it's the worst kind of pain. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a pain that comes from the worst of the states. <laughs> By the way, speaking of the American Revolution, I love the piece of trivia that uh, everyone thinks that um, Paul Revere would have been yelling the British are coming when everyone considered themselves British at the time. He would have never yelled that. He would have yelled the regulars are coming, which is what oh, they called actually? the... Yeah, because yeah. what else were you but British before you were a different yeah. country? Like, the, they all the, considered themselves British. The regulars are coming just sounds like a frustrated pub landlord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, so, philosophy and... So, I did philosophy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and theology. And then, yeah, I, so I basically... I was so bad at science, I dropped... So, we do GCSEs when, in, in England when we were, like, 15 or 16. Yeah, we've talked up on the show before about how, in the British system, you you get to specialise a lot earlier. Yeah, yeah. Which, to, both to the benefit and detriment, I think, of your education, there's, there's yeah. elements to which I wish I'd got a more rounded, later education... Like pamphlets. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Like, yeah. But like, you can, by my A-level, I wasn't doing any art subjects. Yeah, yeah. And I'd imagine it was the opposite. Yeah, it was a, yeah. So, I, so I sort of dropped it. I, I had, you had to do one science. So I did biology at GCSE, but I basically got like nine A's in everything else and then a C in biology. Right. And the contempt that Mr. <laughs> Swan had for me was just so obvious that it was just, he, Is- he wanted me to fail at life. Was was Mr. Swan his real name, or did all of your teachers get named after things within their subject? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Derek Swan, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, and uh, 
I, but this was I used to be I went through a brief like pathetic rebellious phase yeah uh, but but was painfully unfunny with it so I was just an obnoxious little idiot so I remember him say I was acting up in class and he said he went somebody's going to go outside in a minute uh, to which I replied somebody's going to be a bad teacher in a minute which is <laughs> that's <laughs> so horrible that's like it's not even it doesn't even work yeah, as a yeah, joke like yeah, a quip yeah so it's just but it's basically sort of going it, Somebody's your mum. Yeah, yeah, it's so <laughs> pathetic, and it didn't get a laugh from 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 the rest of the class. So, so I, it was a, just a complete defeat for me that having to stand outside for something that's when you that feeling, even you know, long before I'd ever tried stand up, that feeling of tanking that hard, <laughs> and it was on, the entire room heard it. Like it was, yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah, yeah. It, you yeah, it was. It. I'd gone big. Oh. <laughs> But you it, open it with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, there's no getting this gig back. <laughs> but then, so since having abandoned science, I, I then, um, I think, like, so, cause I, so I did English, history and Latin and religious studies for A-levels. Uh, and then I think like a lot of people who've gone heavy on the arts in later life, I've then sort of been more interested in science. Right. Partly because I don't understand any of it. So it appears like genuine magic. Uh-huh. Uh, and so there's a podcast you might have done it yourself but there's a there was a podcast and it was kind of a club night called Bright Club uh, in I, the UK I never did their podcast but I have done one of their live events yeah and so the idea was that it would be comedians emceeing uh, lecturers and profes- uh, professors yeah so I think I did like a sort of a stand up set but then afterwards there was there was a scientist giving an interesting talk on what it was they were working on yeah uh, and it's and it's, I, so I absolutely love them in the podcast it would be Steve Cross, who was like the founder, a comedian, and then a specialist, just going in depth. So I remember talking to someone. Uh, there was a museums expert, and she was talking about spoliation, which is the uh, the theft of uh, antiquities from uh, from nations by other nations. Uh-huh. Uh, and so really interesting. Uh, and then I was able to say, "Whoop whoop!" It's the sound of the spolice. <laughs> as well so but that's that is basically like that you've got someone really learned talking about something really interesting and then we get to be idiots yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they had some heavy duty science so my wife's a psychologist so so that sort of yeah got me more interested in in, in things other than history and latin <laughs> Although la- my Latin A level helped in the quiz last night I was just going to say yeah. Cygnus yeah. for Swan got us uh, that, that yeah. we wouldn't have got that I think without your Latin right yeah well, we were we were torn between two different constellations, yeah. and then you were like, "No, it's definitely yeah. this one." And it made me feel less bad about saying precept when it should have been axiom. <laughs> but who'd have thought there was a car called an axiom? Yeah, who knew that? Who knew that? Probably many of the listeners. This could be a whole new podcast, just, just pub quiz bragging. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's nothing. You know what's much better than a than a trivia night is. Not attending, but hearing a discussion yeah, of some yeah, of the questions yeah, 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 of the yeah, context. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. Hey, um, uh, we we should have a quick little moment for amongst amongst the many celebrity deaths of 2016. Uh, right in and towards the end, Vera Rubin, uh, who was the discoverer of dark matter, um, so pioneering scientist, pioneering female scientist as well at a time when that wasn't really a thing. And therefore had yeah. to basically be doubly good to get her ideas through. I imagine the Republican family I've been staying with here would say, hey, all matter, not just dark <laughs> matter. 
so Vera Rubin was uh, an astronomer um, and yeah like at a time when she started back in the she died in her 80s uh, so at a time when she started again like had to deal with facilities that were in no way equipped for women uh, like not even toilets that were assigned to her and that kind of thing um, she was the first woman to observe at the legendary Palomar Observatory at Caltech in the 60s yeah and she she basically got um, she got set onto looking at galaxies and star clusters, basically, like, given the dull legwork. Pulsars, apparently, were the exciting thing around the time in astronomy. She what wasn't was? Allowed- Pulsars. Oh, okay, Pulsars. Uh, and she wasn't allowed on them. They were like, oh, you go and do your galaxy star cluster stuff. Uh, but she noticed that there weren't enough stars in galaxies for them to hold together under their own gravity. Um because they're rotating at speed, and then at that speed of rotation, they should be flying apart, but they weren't. They were sticking together. But then when she sort of counted up the number of stars and the amount of matter in that area, it's like, well, that's not enough gravity to hold it together with that speed of rotation. And also, the outer arms of the spiral galaxy is rotating at the same speed as those closest to the center, which is also weird. Um, so she basically was the one who worked out that there must be more matter there that we're not able to see. Right. There must be some extra density. There must be some extra mass to account for the that's gravity. keeping it I, lo- I love the way you've described that because I, I was getting I was gripped by that. It felt like an episode of like Columbo, like a detective <laughs> thing where <laughs> there's one a- more thing. <laughs> um so she then spent years very painstakingly count like collecting all the data, mapping hundreds of galaxies. Uh and Really, again, like, very underreported in scientific history, mm-hmm. most likely because she was a woman at a time when that wasn't an acceptable thing in the world of science. Yeah, I hadn't heard of her name until until she died. Uh, but yeah, uh, hugely influential, hugely pioneering astronomer, died aged 88 towards the end of the year. And she did receive a bunch of awards. She didn't receive a Nobel Prize, but she got the National Medal of Science, um, and she was... In 1996, she was the first woman since 1928 to receive the Royal Astronomical Society's gold medal. And I didn't know that she uh, wasn't allowed to study at Princeton because they didn't have women at the time. So she went to Cornell where she studied under Feynman. So my alma mater was uh, taken in in lady scientists. I'm kind of proud of that. That's kind of (laughs) cool. That's what they call it, the lady scientist program. Yeah. 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 Still to this day. Yeah. There is, it's weird, there is one college, I'm not even kidding, there's seven colleges at Cornell, and one of them is the School of Human Ecology, which until the 70s was the School of Home Economics. How weird is that? <laughs> like, there was a college of home economics. Um, uh, yeah, I have no punchline for that, it's just a strange thing. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like the School of Gym or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> school of Woodshop at I Cornell. cook at an Ivy League level. Yeah, like, yeah. My dissertation is a lovely cake. <laughs> um, it's taken three years to make. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot of yeast. <laughs> uh, hey, here's some weird sort of cooking that um, some much smaller things than us are involved in. Um, ants, ants craft tiny sponges to dip into honey and carry it home. Thought we'd start off with a slightly. Li- Oh, that's adorable. Less mm-hmm. heavy That's topic. absolutely mm-hmm. adorable. Yeah. Uh, I feel bad about poisoning them whenever I see them now. <laughs> uh, tool use is seen as something uh, brainy primates and birds do, but even a humble ant 
can choose the right tool for the job. Istvan Mark at the University of uh, Zeged in Hungary and his team offered two species of funnel ants, liquids containing water and honey, along with a range of tools that might help them carry this food to their nests. The ants experimented with the tools and chose those that were easiest to handle and could soak up plenty of liquid, such as bits of sponge or paper, despite them not being found in the insect's natural environment. This suggests ants can take into account the properties of both the tools and the liquids they are transporting. It also indicates they can learn to use new tools, even without big brains. I can see a spin on the scrapyard challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Set some ants. Um, Look at those guys go with those little bits of sponge. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Some ant species are known to use tools such as mud or sand grains to collect and transport liquid to their nests, but this is the first time they are shown to select the most suitable ones, uh, says team member Patricia Dittori from the University of Paris North in France. Um, to investigate this d- behavior, uh, the team offered... I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for the Latin here. Um, in fact, fuck it. You're a Latin student. Shall I lean over and... There we go. A phynogaster subterranea and a senilis. Uh, Ants. So what's the first one? A a phenogaster would be... Well, the subterranean is subterranean. Yeah. Like underground. And senile, I'm going to (laughs) guess. Yeah. Old ants. It's a species of old ants. But yeah, Yeah. a phenogaster, um, ants. Uh, Various possible tools, both natural, such as twigs, pine needles, and, and soil grains, and artificial. And they experimented with the tools and eventually showed preference for certain ones, even ones that were unfamiliar. They would drop the tool into the liquid, pick it up, and then carry it to the workers back in the nest to drink from. Uh, subterranean workers preferred the small soil grains to transfer diluted honey and, and sponge for pure honey. Um, most of them even tore the sponge into smaller bits, presumably for better handling. Um, Senilla started off using all the tools equally, but then focused on pieces of paper and sponge, which could soak up most of the diluted honey they were offered. This indicates they can learn as they go along. Uh, factors such as the weight of the tools could have influenced the ant's choice, but the researchers believe the tool's absorbency and ease of handling mattered the most. Um, the Aphanogaster t- ants possibly develop such tools because unlike many other ants, they can't expand their stomach. They have to find ways to explore the valuable resource of liquid food. This way, when ants come across a fallen fruit or dead insect in the wild, the fluids could be transferred to the nest for the rest of the colony. Um, as ants live in a highly competitive environment, natural selection may favor using such tools to help feed the colony. Um, and these ants may have been happy to try novel materials because which particular tools are available in their natural habitat varies according to the season. Uh, I, I, mean, I so, love that ants live in a competitive environment. Like they're getting <laughs> back, like, you need to buck your ideas up. They do, and apparently the stress really gets to them. Like Some ants really crash out <laughs> or have to retire to the countryside. It's just an ant living in its parents' basement <laughs> yeah seriously when that when this ant was a kid like this ant was like oh, so fuck this is yeah, a yeah. prodigious ant so much potential yeah. why can't you be like your cousin he carries fluid ounces <laughs> he uses a sponge <laughs> a sponge uh, many other accomplishments of these small brain creatures rival those of humans or even surpass them hold on hold on Sir Pe- come on such as farming fungi species or using Dead reckoning, a sophisticated navigation to find their way back to the nest. 
The size of brain needed for specific cognitive tasks is not clear, says Bashbach, uh, of Valerie Bashbach of Roanoke College, Virginia. Um, tool use in insects is largely genetically controlled and evolved from selection of advantageous genetic mutations, says Gavin R. Hunt, the University of Auckland. This is unlike most tool use in birds or primates, which begins as novel behavior and can sometimes be enhanced through genetic changes. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's more ingrained in insects than in primates. Apparently so. I would have thought the opposite. That's interesting. So yeah, I wonder what if there are things that act similarly to sponges that they would have found if we didn't have those for their... Like what else naturally out in the forest is like sort of absorbent yeah. like that? Whether you'll end up with an ant doing an infomercial. Oh, by the way, this is, is going to be the loudest thing you've ever heard in your life in about 10 seconds. What's I'm wondering if this is going to come through the recording. This is a group of ants are shifting some, uh, yeah. some <laughs> yeah. gear. Two incredibly large ants <laughs> are currently moving a dumpster down the side of Andy's building. Actually, I don't think it was that bad. I'm not going to cut that. We're going to leave that in. Um, what do you got for us, Andy? Uh, well, I thought we should talk about this Titanic news, which is um, pretty pretty uh, groundbreaking. And uh, yeah, it's a story I just saw today. It's crazy. So, according to new evidence, um, possibly an iceberg didn't cause the Titanic to sink. Yeah, um, or, or at least wasn't or, solely right. Right, mainly responsible. So, um, iceberg deniers. <laughs> <laughs> Titanic truthers. <laughs> Icebergs can't break steel ships. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. There we go. Um, so, yes, this may have been caused by an enormous fire on board, not by hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic, experts have claimed, as new evidence has been published to support the theory. Uh, as we all know, more than 1,500 passengers lost their lives when the Titanic sank en route to New York from Southampton in April 1912. And while the cause of the disaster has long been attributed to the iceberg, fresh evidence has surfaced of a fire in the ship's hull, which researchers say burned unnoticed for almost three weeks leading up to the collision. While experts have previously acknowledged the theory of a fire on board, new analysis of rarely seen photographs has prompted researchers to blame the fire as the primary cause of the ship's demise. Is that going to be too loud again? Uh, journalist Sinan Malini, who has spent more than 30 years researching the sinking of the Titanic, published, uh, I'm sorry, studied photographs taken by the ship's chief electrical engineers before it left Belfast shipyard. And he said he was able to identify 30 foot long black marks along the right, or on the, along the front right hand side of the hull, just behind where the ship's lining was pierced by the iceberg. So he said, we're looking at the exact area where the iceberg stuck and we appear to have a weakness or damage to the hull in that specific place before she even left Belfast. So wake, ex- wake up sheeple. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, experts subsequently confirmed the marks were likely to have been caused by a fire started in a three-story high fuel store behind one of the ship's boiler rooms. A team of 12 men attempted to put out the flames, but it was too large to control, reaching temperatures of up to 1,000 degrees C. Uh, Subsequently, when the Titanic struck ice, the steel hull was weak enough for the ship's lining to be torn open. Uh, Officers on board were reportedly under strict instructions from J. Bruce Ismay, president of the company that built the Titanic, not to mention the fire to any of the ship's two and a half thousand passengers. Um, So presenting his research, there was a Channel 4 documentary called Titanic the New Evidence broadcast a couple of days ago in Britain. Um, Mr. Maloney also claims the ship was reversed into its berth in Southampton to prevent passengers from seeing damage made to the side of the ship from the ongoing fire. Uh, He said the original Titanic inquiry branded the sinking as an act of God this isn't a simple story of colliding with an iceberg and sinking. It's a perfect storm of extraordinary factors coming together. Fire, ice, 
and criminal negligence. Nobody has investigated these marks before. It totally changes the narrative. We have metallurgy experts telling us that when you get that level of temperature against steel, it makes it brittle and reduces its strength by up to 75%. The fire was known about, but it was played down. She should never have been put to sea. Um, So Ray Boston, in 2008, an expert, uh, Titanic researcher, said he believed the coal fire began during speed trials as much as, as 10 days prior to the ship leaving Southampton had the potential to cause serious explosions bef- below decks before it reached New York. I just, an ongoing, days-long fire. How does that just go? I, I know, right? I mean, I, I know the, the ship's, the ship's so massive, big. but yeah. still, yeah. it's crazy. And an inquiry into the disaster presented to Parliament in 1912 described the ship as traveling at high speed through dangerous icy waters, giving the crew little opportunity to avoid the fatal collision. It might explain why the 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 car that Leonardo and Kate get it on in got so steamy. Uh-huh. Oh, that's true. That's true. Now that I think about it, yeah, there's some heat. Have and you that read film the film? It's nothing if not accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got it's, it was one of those. I got. I can remember like getting a bit obsessed with with that as a teenager. Something about like a disaster that huge. Yeah. So there, there was a thing that you could do live role playing, but it, it was like live role playing stuff was way more popular in America than it was in the UK. And I remember reading, it was like in it was in like Dragon magazine which was the uh, publication of for Dungeons and Dragons fans. Uh-huh. And there was a guy who had he'd gone l- live role playing and they were recreating the Titanic. So this guy it was he, he'd written the article and he'd he'd been able to play Jay Bruce Ismay uh, um, <laughs> for, for like the weekend. Yeah. So I was going around and was and and got into full conspiracy theory mode. Did they have like a pretty large docked ship they could use? Well, they they used they... a swimming pool, uh, and and they in the end for the final denouement they uh, they scattered a load of tickets into the into the water. So people who were desperate enough to survive would would have to jump into the pool with their clothes on to try and grab a ticket to see if they could survive. <laughs> okay. So it's just you're dressing in period gear, standing on a pool deck, pretending that that pool deck is is the, is the, the icy waters of, of the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, that's, I remember thinking like the leap, the leap of imagination yeah. required, <laughs> but it's also like at what point do you stop role playing? Like when you check, like when you go to bed at night, yeah, yeah, and you're just you're in wherever. Oh, it's it was. a multi day. It's a multi. Yeah, it was LARP. like the, it was like a few. It was like a weekend. You got to be on the tight, and you have to ignore because I'm sure they still have to have the, like the regular pool lifeguards on duty, <laughs> and they're not going to put on shit. They're just wearing their like red Baywatch shorts. And... Well, there was in Liverpool. They they opened a Titanic themed hotel, really, uh, and and I think, it, but it, and it, it it got it came under fire quite a lot for being <laughs> in dubious taste, uh, and I presume it was only the the bit up to le- it leaving Southampton that they were recreating, rather right, than right, right, right. But it is weird how like it's enough time's gone by, but not that much. It's been a hundred years, which is a lot and a little when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, how long ago did the last Titanic survivor die? It's quite recently because there was. I know DiCaprio and Winslet were like they were helping her out with a bit of money. Right. There was like somebody, you know, a few people who'd been babies, you know, uh, who had lived to like a hundred and five. Yeah, because it's been. But it's long enough that we can have, like, somebody... Eric Andre always has an elaborate birthday party. In one year, he had, like, a petting zoo and a mechanical bull and an inflatable Titanic slide that went up, like, 30 feet. And it was, like, half of a boat at a 45-degree angle. He'd slide <laughs> down it. And I was like, in, you know, in, in 2101, is there going to be, like, a Twin Towers yeah, yeah, yeah. thing that they slide down the rubble? and Yeah, when everyone who 
even has a memory of it is is, is dead. Is that then you can start making an yeah. amusement park ride out of the oh, tragedy? Yeah. Or let's let's do a Hindenburg party. Yeah, yeah. It's been long enough. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> Or just, oh, the humanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what the pamphlet says. For the it just depends where you put the exclamation mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, interesting stuff. I can't believe it's taken this long to come yeah. out. It's slightly misleading it headline because it was still, still a the collision, iceberg, but yeah, still maybe a it collision with ice the... that caused yeah, the yeah. ultimately yeah. caused and I've the seen, whole I know I've seen a picture. There is like there was an iceberg pictured a few day, a few days afterwards that had like a big red smear down the side. Right, um, the, like, and it was never guilty. it was never a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, just trying to blend in. Yeah, but but the, the, they were f- reasonably sure that was the uh, that was the the and iceberg. Like the Trumps of the time pledging to capture that <laughs> yeah. iceberg and bring it to justice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll go in there and we'll shoot that iceberg and its kids. <laughs> what a loser! Yeah. Um, That's the end of the tweet at the iceberg. <laughs> well, while we're while, while we're in an aquatic theme. There's, there's two potential linked stories from this, both new scientist stories. Tuna fishing bad for climate change or molten river speeding up beneath Canada and Russia? One of them, The latter of those has more of a Ghostbusters 2 feel mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the while the slime was under the building. Yeah. <laughs> a molten iron river discovered speeding beneath Russia and Canada. I like it. Let's do that one. Yeah. The, uh, the other story is basically, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but the other story is essentially if you factor in climate change uh, sustainable tuna fishing isn't necessarily a good thing because they use a lot more fuel than vessels just scooping up the fish in their vicinity. Uh, more fish can be gathered in a shorter amount of time is the brief version of that story. There you go. We'll link to it on probablyscience.com and on the podcast link if you want the f- if you want a m- more detailed version. Um, but yeah, molten river. Deep below our planet's surface, a molten jet of iron nearly as hot as the surface of the sun is picking up speed. This stream of liquid has been discovered for the first time by telltale magnetic field readings 3,000 kilometers below North America and Russia taken from space. This vast jet stream, some 420 kilometers wide, uh, that's, what, around 300 miles? Mm -hmm. Uh, Just under. Has trebled in speed since 2000 and is now circulating westwards at between 40 and 45 kilometers per year deep under Siberia and heading towards... Uh, beneath Europe. This is three times faster than typical speeds of liquid in the outer core. No one knows why the jet has got faster, but the team that discovered the accelerating jet thinks it's a natural phenomenon that dates back as much as a billion years and can help us understand the formation of Earth's magnetic fields that keep us safe from solar winds. Uh, It's a remarkable discovery, says Phil Livermore of the University of Leeds, who led the team... We know that the liquid. We've known that the liquid core is moving around, but our observations haven't been sufficient uh, until now to see this significant jet. We now we know more about the sun than the Earth's core. Says another team member. Uh, the discovery of this jet is an exciting step in learning more about our planet's inner workings. I will say it's a little bit less cool of a story when you really conceptualize that three thousand kilometers down. So it's basically halfway to the center of the Earth. Yeah, it's not yeah. quite Ghostbusters two. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was off with my mental arithmetic. By the way, it's nearer two hundred and sixty miles. Ah, okay. Uh, I think we probably lost some listeners over that, but it's okay. Yeah, I think because that's the thing. When you first back. hear it, you sort of think there's someone's going to be going. Okay, how can we harness that? Yeah. How can we frack that? <laughs> All we have to do is dig down uh, two thousand miles. We put a little, uh, little turbine in there. Sure. Yeah. Um, that can withstand temperatures. 
around the temperature of the sun surface. <laughs> I wonder if any of that team who, who've researched that, if when they go to the gym, they can then go, I'm working on my core. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I'm going to allow it. I'm going to allow it. Yeah. Yep, that works. <laughs> agreed. <laughs> that joke Sustained. is agreed. <laughs> what made the discovery possible was the combined monitoring power of the European Space Agency's trio of satellites called Swarm, which were launched in 2013. From orbit, they can, look, they can measure magnetic field variations as deep down as 3,000 kilometers below the surface, where the molten core meets the solid mantle. Having all three means we can strip away magnetic fields from elsewhere, such as the ionosphere and the crust, providing our sharpest ever image of the fluctuations of the core mantle boundary alone, says Livermore. Uh, plugging new data into models allow the team to figure out how the fluctuations changed, o- changed over time. So the magnetic field is generated by the movement of molten iron in the outer core. So examining the magnetic field can reveal details of the behavior of the core that underpins it. Um, this is the thing. I, I'd re- I don't know if I, I read this a while ago and I wasn't sure if this was going to be acted on that there was supposedly Trump was going to get rid of NASA funding for some of the Earth studying satellites so yeah, some, of, some, yeah. of, like, some of the NASA satellites that look at like <coughs> salinity of water and, and temperature stuff that, that they were going to be absolutely screwed and that um, he was all going to be all about let's explore the solar system uh-huh but that a lot of the re- like some of some of the yeah. data that NASA find like is absolutely essential, and they are the the absolute world leaders. So stuff like that, I don't know if that's under threat. Yeah, yeah well, that one about, that yeah. one was the European Space Agency's satellites, ah, right. but but still, yeah, I but, think yeah, the, the very kinds of things so. that like when we had uh, Jay Familiadian, who was uh, works with NASA in their tracking of Earth's water. Like I think some of those kinds of satellites are under threat with what. Uh, our listeners do love it when we keep harping on Trump, though, don't they? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, who knows what kinds of things are actually going to come to pass when when the shit hits the fan in three weeks? We'll um, see what happens. Yeah, also, Earth's magnetic field seems to have been weakening, especially since around 1840. I didn't realize it was that recent that things have noticeably changed. At about 5% per century, the magma stream should help geophysicists predict more accurately if and when the magnetic field of the planet's core will flip and the magnetic north and south poles trade places which happens every few thousand years again i knew that happened but i didn't realize it happened on i didn't know it was that short either yeah yeah yeah. because think i mean like every one of santa's elves like the moving process getting Uh, the whole workshop from (laughs) north to south pole every thousand years so many things your iphone compass app will have to be reprogrammed so many things will have to change. If you sped up that process, if you could film that, it would look like the Earth is doing some kind of weird dance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Or you, yeah, if you had little uh, iron filings. Actually, with the, pat- the pattern wouldn't necessarily change. It would slightly realign, but the field lines would look the same. Well, uh, but would it? Because would, be, would there be an in-between period? I mean, there's no way it suddenly... Yeah, I don't know. Instantly, wouldn't it have to just start rotating until it... Uh, maybe not. Yeah, if... Um, uh, I don't know, ge- geologists or geophysicists who listen to the show, I reckon we probably got a couple. Um, does the flipping of the magnetic field happen suddenly, instantaneously? Is there a tipping point and it suddenly flips? Or does it go slowly through zero magnetic field and then to something? That would be bad because the magnetic field is necessary to help protect us from... Um, I can't imagine there would ever be a time radiation. that there would be zero unless there's no motion at all. what about the exact moment when it goes <clears throat> through that? Is that just an instant? Is that an instant or is that a sort of gradual thing yeah yeah does it flip or does it 
rotate. I should. Yeah. Can we get some iron filings in space? As the former to- electrical engineer here, I should be able to conceptualize this. But um, I- and also, if you know when it's going to happen, well, the flipping of a magnetic field can generate energy. So if we just have like a big coil around the Earth, oh yeah, we got to make it a big Earth coil. <laughs> we can turn it in that moment uh, into a massive generator. And we could shoot a pretty cool spark into space. Okay, wait, I don't feel bad that I don't understand it, because even this article is like, they don't really understand it. This is going to help them understand how, how, how it happens, how it changes over time, whether and when it will weaken in reverse. So, yeah, I don't know if it's just that we know that it'll... Uh, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to stop talking before <laughs> I say some uh, bullshit non-science. Uh, what do you got for us, Andy? Um, well, we have some... Well, this is kind of a long... We got a long email from... Um, listener Allie Greenberg who listens to us while she writes code at work and I don't know do you want to talk a little about about uh, about breast cancer for a second not not a story but an email uh yeah that too... go ahead yeah because we, we discussed it. it was a few episodes ago I can't remember which one exactly uh but uh yeah Allie writes in to say um as an assistant professor of epidemiology uh, and a tr- translational cancer researcher, I want to write in with a quick clarification regarding the unfortunately titled New Scientist story you discussed, your boobs start to eat themselves after breastfeeding. Uh, first, with regards to the confusion surrounding the mixed reports Matt and Andy discussed, most of the epidemiological data point to a temporarily increased risk of breast cancer for anywhere from 5 to 10 years after ending breastfeeding, depending on the population of study. After that, the risk decreases. So while your breast cancer re- risk increases after breastfeeding ends it seems to be favorable to do in the long run um and second in response to the discussion of having children um i haven't heard this word before paris woman paris women p-a-r-o-u-s which is women who have given birth do generally have a decreased risk of breast cancer as compared to nulli paris women which is the opposite women who've never had children there is variation naturally but this finding has been fairly consistent uh, finally, we do know that breasts do change over time as younger women have denser breasts than, with less fatty tissue and more fibrous tissue, fibrous tissue, which become fattier via involution over time. Breasts that remain dense are associated overall with increased risk of breast cancer. It will be interesting to see if the inflammatory response and RSC1 phagocytosis, which we discussed which in that, eating, right, yeah, yeah. are associated with these changes. <clears throat> And then, uh, and then Ali says some nice things about the show. Uh, and also, please don't hesitate to let me know if I can be a service in the future. Uh, so thank you, Ali. You are now our go-to epidemiologist specifically around cancer. Mm-hmm. Thanks for writing in. This uh, is like the... I, that's like the best response of any podcast or radio show I've ever done to have listeners that wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Like I occasionally do a radio show in, in the UK with Frank Skinner. Very, right. very, I'm like the go-to, I'm like the third choice substitute. Uh, and I'll generally get stuff like, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> so well, every, every so often, uh, the six episodes of the Channel 4 show RootTube, or E4 oh, show, oh, yeah, yeah. that I hosted, rather than Alex <laughs> Zane, who uh, is the primary host of the show. Like, every so often they repeat my six episodes from 2008, <laughs> which I only discover basically when someone on Twitter logs in to call me a cunt. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I guess my episodes are on yep, again. Yep, yep. <laughs> 
Thanks, random Twitter person, yeah. for being furious that your internet clip show is briefly hosted by a different face. It, it's, it's an enjoyable thing that when someone, when you get some some sort of abuse, and then you have to sort of go on a trawl of like, okay, something that I've done has been repeated somewhere, <laughs> like, and I need yeah, to find out what it is. What is it? Oh, you an episode an episode of this show that I taped like almost a decade ago now yeah, yeah, yeah. has come back on the air and you've assumed that they've sacked the main guy yeah, and yeah. put me on there rather than looking they, at the date at the they, end uh, very occasionally uh, my old sketch show gets shown in Belgium so, oh, so every now and then we, yeah we get we get some and, and someone sometimes it's nice stuff very funny show yeah, some, someone said we are clang is art <laughs> Which, not funny just art <laughs> do you do you Which, ever get, I'd imagine to the Belgians it probably is <laughs> yeah yeah do you, I, I get those. Um, do you get those? I think it's the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, and they'll give you like a big kind of twenty-page list of everywhere that anything you've done has been shown, and it, and you'll get like fifteen p for everything, but it adds up. Yes. So I presume you'll get that with RudeTube. Uh, I should probably chase that up because I I don't know what the deal is with that one, um, but I do from the U- US. I occasionally get royalty checks from a. Uh, like I was in, I was briefly in a couple of episodes of legit Jim Jeffries. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, that wasn't just like a scale single payment thing that, that you got. You get residuals, I get residuals but wow. like not big residuals. No, but like just I'll the get, idea that you do it all is awesome. I'm, yeah, like yeah. It's, I'll get a check every so often. Um, well, there was one, and because of the both the title of that episode of the show and the fact that it was the residuals for the overseas rights, <laughs> they just sold it abroad. So I got a check that at the bottom just said, uh, Matt Kirshen, foreign racist. <laughs> uh, and the other one said, Matt Kirshen, foreign licked. <laughs> nice. I occasionally, I, I, uh, I write on Russell Howard's good news in the UK. Yep. And, uh, Every now and then, they sort of need an extra body for a sketch. And there was one we had. A, it was a mystery guest who her skill was she paints bottoms. She right. was an arse artist, uh, and so they were going to get Russell to to paint an arse. And so it was. So all that was seen on on the screen was my forty year old backside, <laughs> and, and by occasion you get residuals for that. It's the, the, and the check reads. <laughs> it, it just comes. Thankfully, it doesn't. They don't have to describe okay. it. I think it, it, anal it, canvas. It, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I should say Stephen Hall. Total lack of dignity. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's just like oh, for showing my ass on TV, I can now take us out to dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a nice dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I can, we can get the set menu at Cafe Rouge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do think it's interesting. I was thinking about this recently uh, as we're creating so much data as a society. Because there was some statistic, like maybe in in 2016, we created more data than in all years leading up to that or something, probably something like that. We're creating so much shit and presuming we don't hit some cataclysmic event that wipes out all digital records of civilization in like 500 years, some high school kid could go on like a a, a probably science jag, could, could get into like the back catalog of this podcast, you know, and then have this really specific 
because like we'll get people that listen to early early episodes from five years ago and then like we'll write in i just listened to this and then have some comment on like i don't remember a thing about that thing we did then. Yeah, yeah but then in, in hundreds of years every piece of content that humans have created will be around so the nerdiness people will be able to have can be so sp- like in t- in t- 2500 you could get into like a mid 22nd century free jazz period or something <laughs> and be really into that and no one around you does that make any sense yeah yeah there's yeah. so many things to pick as your nerd dumb or there'll be like PhD Over theses centuries. like the way a friend of mine was like he went into it was like he was looking at parish records from Norfolk in the 16th century mm-hmm. and that was that was his PhD so that, so that someone could be doing really specific theses on the history of a podcast yeah but they'll have so much more they won't have just all we've had is pretty much writing we don't even know like how great composers how the orchestras of the time would have performed those pieces exactly but now we have like audio and video and we will have that for centuries to come yeah. and you'll have this really like personal connection with people hundreds of years ago that's, yeah, that's yeah. crazy to think about to me i don't well, know it's like, and it's the way that they'll you know if it's a figure from the past and they'll be was he actually a sexist or a racist and yeah, with yeah. with this it's like everyone's yes, tiny yeah. little foibles like they'll know yeah oh well he did some wonderful things but he regularly looked at brazzers or <laughs> <laughs> yeah if this podcast is i mean uh, it's not all about our podcast. Everyone who's making things, because everybody who does what we do now has to be making all kinds of things on all platforms. And if that all survives, then it can be poured over later on in bad ways, probably, or good ways. I thought that was interesting. Maybe no one else yeah, thinks no, that's it, interesting. No, I think it, no, it really is. Like, well, it's, it's like there are certain, like, I remember, like, listening to, like, it, like you, it, when I was first getting into Bill Hicks, listening to everything possible. And then you discover someone who, there's, a, there's one bit where he, where he, like, stumbles over a word. I remember like bonding with 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 other comics, sort of going oh, and and that we'd all had that little moment where we knew the exact stumble. Yeah, yeah. And but so that everyone could, yeah, you could have your entire every tiny little mistake yeah. could be poured over. Yeah, and just like we, but now sort of phone camera videos that you didn't authorize, taken from the back of a room, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. included into your study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I was putting together. I just wanted excuse to do some editing just to learn at setting software and I was cutting together all these clips of like snippets of concerts I saw over the last year and I was like oh these are all kind of uh, someone else's content that I shouldn't be doing this with but with <laughs> music I don't feel as bad as with yeah, comedy yeah, yeah. for some reason there, but. well I, th- I think it's I, I think with good reason because music is works off, with repeating works with repetition yeah. if it, that's I think the biggest difference between music live and comedy live yeah, is if yeah, you yeah. see your favorite band and they don't play your favorite songs, you're annoyed. Whereas if you see your favorite comedian and they just do old material, yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, is there nothing? <laughs> or you might love it if it's like Roddy Dangerfield or something. I mean, like, there's yeah. elements. Yeah, there's definitely <laughs> Which, some cross. Like Brian Regan will do a do an hour that no one has seen because he turns over material ridiculously right, fast. Right. But then he'll come on for the encore and take requests for some of his classic yeah. bits. It's, it's that weird thing. Sometimes you'll discover someone's bootlegged bootleg to you and you'll hit and it'd be a thing that you've completely forgotten about but someone will have it uh, there was there was when we did the only time uh, my old sketch show clang did glastonbury it was 2009 it was the weekend that michael jackson had died i yeah um, it was a really hot weekend yeah that yeah that glastonbury was just no no yeah, clouds yeah yeah rain. and uh, and i'd completely forgotten and so i saw someone had put this i just discovered this quite recently someone had someone had videoed it from the audience and we used to do a sketch in which one of our number marrick was a uh, he'd come on as a dancing horse so he just he, and uh, and the, the, we would get the audience to shout out dance requests what mm-hmm. styles of dance he could do 
uh, and uh, and the idea that the the main conceit of the sketch was that we were just obviously just trying to exhaust him, mm-hmm. so we'd keep it going until he was almost passing out. Yeah. Uh, but someone shouted out "Moonwalk," uh. Uh, and so he did that. Then pretended to have sex with a child, <laughs> and then clutched his heart and <laughs> fell over and collapsed. And it was like this electric moment. And in my head, I'd romanticise that, thinking, oh, there's no way it could be as funny as I remember it being. And it was a real delight. I didn't know someone had recorded it. And then seeing it, and it's like, oh, no, that still works. <laughs> I'm trying to find it now. Yeah, it's not that, online anymore. Well, I think it might, it might have been on Facebook. Oh, okay. I think, it, I, think, I, think I saw it on Facebook. <laughs> but again, that's the thing. I could even be romanticising it now. I could, could yeah. sit and go, oh, no, it's just absolutely horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see it for whatever it's worth, yeah. Um, Sounds good to me. Um, I don't have a good transition for this, but do you guys want to hear about Bill Gates's take on uh, f- risks facing our world? Yeah, why not? Sure. Uh, so people across the world, particularly those in developing countries, face a decade at risk from pandemics spread by antibiotic-resistant bugs, the billionaire Bill Gates has warned. Gates, who made his fortune, obviously, with Microsoft, um, before becoming a philanthropist, said the success of antibiotics has created complacency that's now exposing us uh, to the rise of microbial resistance to the drugs. I cross my fingers all the time that some epidemic like a big flu doesn't come along in the next 10 years, Gates told a special edition of Radio 4's Today program, guest edited by Dame Sally Davies, the chief medical officer of England. I do think we'll have much better medical tools, much better response, but we're a bit vulnerable right now if something spread very quickly like a flu that was quite fatal. That would be a tragedy and new approaches should allow us to reduce that risk a lot. Gates said it was crucial for wealthier countries to step in to help the developing world fight disease, both for humanitarian reasons and for their own health security. Um, although mistakes were made, criticism of the World Health Organization during the Ebola crisis in West Africa was unfair, he said, because it was not funded or staffed to do all the things that observers wanted it to do. Um, I'm realizing this is not that interesting of a story. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I, what I find fascinating with it is there's this real, like when, when Ebola kicked in, the show that I one of the shows I write for we we just did a it was a basic thing of like contrasting American media coverage and British media coverage of the crisis yeah and the, the way the British coverage is fairly sober and 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 you know we end up taking most of our American stuff from Fox so we're slightly twisting it for our own purposes but there is this weird desire of certain bits of the media where they kind of you sense that they want something to go pandemic oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that just to see almost out of curiosity yeah just yeah. to see how back so every time whether it's SARS uh, or, or bird flu uh, or Ebola there's that real like is this the one yeah. yeah do I get to be the scud stud of this pandemic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you all, get to put on like a hazmat suit yeah, and yeah, from yeah. a lab. Yeah. It's almost like there's almost like a nostalgic reverie about it must have been great when the Spanish flu kicked in <laughs> Oh, those pamphlet writers loved that shit. Yeah. Those things were flying off the hotel shelves. (laughs) Um, Actually, this leads into a more uplifting story, uh, which happened, I believe, just a few weeks ago, also related to Ebola. Uh, There's an Ebola vaccine that appears to be effective. Um, So good news on that front. One second. Yeah, this this vaccine seems to have 100% effectiveness. It hasn't been approved by any regulatory authority, but it's considered so effective that an emergency stockpile of 300,000 doses has already been created for use should an outbreak flare up again. Um, Let's see. Yeah, since it was first discovered in former Zaire in 1976, there have been many efforts to create a vaccine, and they all petered out. Um, 
Although only about 1,600 people died of Ebola over those years, which I didn't know. The grotesque nature of their deaths obviously has lent the disease a frightening reputation. How many people died? Wait, 1,600. But no, that doesn't... Hold on a second. Ultimately, only the huge explosive 2014 outbreak that took 11,000 lives in Africa. Then why does it say only 1,600 died? Was that like from 76? From 76 to 2014. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the vaccine uh, was not ready in time to stop the outbreak which probably began in a hollow bat-filled tree in Guinea. I didn't know they'd pinpointed that. And swept Liberia and Sierra Leone before being a defeated. A hollow bat-filled hollow tree. hollow bat-filled tree. <laughs> I found patient zero. Yeah, like, it's a that's... tree. A hollow bat-filled filled, filled that, tree. That, tr- that, the abuse that tree must have taken. Yeah. Because, you know, there was like with HIV, there was like patient zero, and it was found out to be complete right. nonsense. Yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. With, um... It was patient O because he was out of California and was misread as zero. Oh, right. Yeah. But, yeah, the... That level, I, that tree will have just been poor tree. God, yeah. What's and also the because of that most bat filled trees are now going to be on fairly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a registry for bat filled trees. Now they're setting yeah. up. It's... If your if your child comes out as a bat filled tree, they're going to be like, well, yeah. <laughs> and then they'll be confused. This, this, there's a tree. It's got squirrels in it. But people just <laughs> like, are you sure it's not squirrels? <laughs> Check again. Check, please, squirrels. Because no one in our family has ever been a bat filled tree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this new vaccine that they developed has some flaws, experts said. It appears to work only against one of the two most common strains of the Ebola virus, and it may not give long-lasting protection. Some of those who get it report side effects like joint pain and headaches, which I don't know. I'd say I would take joint pain and headaches over copious uh, bleeding yeah, from every yeah. orifice. Like that's, uh, which also, because the thing that's, Interesting was like the, the the British citizens who who came back. I think her name was Pauline Kaffaki was a British nurse who came back. Right, and it's and the I think she pulled through. I mean, it's pretty horrific, but she. Yeah. But that there are the means to help people survive it. It's okay. just it's just it's extremely expensive. So I think it's the Royal Free uh, in London. I think that's like the specialist Ebola or spe- or like uh-huh. the particularly infectious diseases. Uh-huh. That they can deal with it, which is weird because that's where my two children were born as well. That's where so. I was born as well. Is it? I'm not your child, though, right? No, no. Just checking. Like, the we could, we could look. You're sort of less hairy than me, so yeah. Yeah, and, and I'd had to been sexually active when I was about nine. Oh no, so. younger. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a four-year difference, oh, is, is that what it, difference yeah, between yeah. us. So and, three and a bit years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. early I started. I mean, I was, a, I was a handsome toddler. But, but. <laughs> um, but I wonder with the story like that, how long it'll take before people start theorizing that that vaccine was actually, has actually been around for 15 years. Oh, it has been and kept the, down by... The, yeah, Big Pharma has been keeping it. There's no, there's no uh, incentive for uh, the cure. Yeah, that they, they, need, they want it to catch on in Africa. They want the population to be oh, decimated, etc., yeah. oh, etc. Et There's got to be someone who believes that, yeah. We, we will post a link to that story and all the others on our Squarespace-powered website. Squarespace-powered website, yes. Um, Which is probablyscience.com. That's where you can find more details on all the stories and uh, links to contact us. Um, Listen to all past episodes there. And there's a donation button. There is a donation button there, yes. Uh, people can click on the little donate thing and help us keep this thing going, help us with the upkeep and the running and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, being some monthly donations that have come through from Pandora Young, Drew Chapman, Matthew Arnold, uh, Ben Marriott, Brooks Gilmore, Stephen Edmonds, Keith Statenfield, uh, Leanne, uh, Leanne, yeah, Leanne Mazia, Peter Lipsy, Lipsy. Uh, 
Lipchi, thank you. I always get that wrong. Emma Wilson, Murphy Shane, uh, Paul Freeland, thank you very much, all of you. Thank you very, very much, Caroline Laco, and thank you very, very much, Justin Broad. Very generous of you. And also, um, thank you, Daniel Monson, for the one-off donation. Thank you, Cameron Swan, for the really generous one-off donation. And thank you, holy crap, Sheila Carty, for an incredibly generous one-off donation. I think our biggest single donation. I think that is the biggest single donation. You've been trumped by, in total, by some of the very generous monthly donations, but as a one-off. Sheila Carty, you're the the early champion of 2017. So thank you, all of you. Thank you, all of you, for helping us, uh, big and small, for chucking us some money to help us keep this thing going. We really appreciate it. The other way people are financially helping us is by using the Amazon shopping link. I know um, many of you did your holiday shopping through Amazon using our link first. So thank you, anyone who was shopping on Amazon and thought to do that. Uh, You can find the link for that on our website too. Why not set that as the bookmark in your browser so you never have to remember to type it in or go through our website first. You can just start typing Amazon and it'll autocomplete as our link. We get a commission. It costs you no extra. Uh, And the other way I know loads of you have been helping is by spreading the word, um, letting other people know about it, tweeting, Facebooking, writing nice things about us on iTunes and whatever other podcast listening app or website you use. Um, Those ratings and reviews and nice comments really do help drive people towards our show. So thank you, everyone who's done that. Yes, indeed. Um, Do we have time for one last little story before we... Sure, why not? Do you want to do the antimatter laser story? Can I before? Can I plug my wife's blog? Absolutely. It's, so, so my yeah. wife uh, is a cognitive behaviour therapist, and she has a blog called Cognitive Behave Yourself, uh, in which she uh, she basically tests out her own CBT therapies and ideas on herself, uh, and then uh, it's I I think it's a very good read. So if anyone's That's interested awesome. in that sort of yeah. thing, yeah. Um, so she did, for example, she did one where she. Um, uh, she couldn't handle horror films so she forced herself to watch a load of horror films and attached herself to a heart monitor uh, to study her response but then she had to find the perfect horror film so she saw Silence of the Lambs and wasn't afraid and just loved it <laughs> but then found found Wolf Creek absolutely destroyed her so she was trying to force herself to keep watching it to get used to it Wait, so Silence of the Lambs was the one she inoculated herself with or one she watched uh, after having already... Uh, she, she watched that. She, she said to me, what horror film do you think I should watch that will re- really get the scare the bejesus out of me? Yeah. And I'd said Silence of the Lambs and she basically came back and went, you're a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say the descent is probably a pretty if you yes, kind of yeah, claustrophobic yeah. tendencies. That one's a pretty great. Um, do you know? Do you know the thing with the descent that it's one of the more I unfortunate bits of social of British social history that the bus that blew up on the seven seven um, on the side of that bus was an advert for the descent, and the the tagline for the quote it said a descent into sheer terror. And for oh, that to be the bus, that, yeah. So it often gets photoshopped out of when they when they show yeah, footage that that yeah. that photo is often removed because it's too too on, on the, the nose. nose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just um, so that's cognitivebehaviorself.com. We will definitely put a link to that on probablyscience.com. I'm reading some of the blog titles; they're great. Pay it forehead, or when did giant foreheads become socially acceptable? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah she's. Um, I'm very, I'm very proud of that little lady. That's oh god, that's looking what forward a to thing to out. say. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be all, all helpful to her, and then I've sounded like a patronising man from the 1950s. Um, 
As long as my dinner's on the table, <laughs> she's she's welcome to write her blog. <laughs> she's welcome to have her stories. Yeah. Now, this is great and interesting and cool. And um, so yeah, we'll totally link to that. Uh, well, before we get into the last story, uh, any other stuff that you'd like to plug for yourself um, personally? Well, the the thing that I'm doing, it's not really plugging it because it's someone else's tour. My my big project for this year is I I, I am opening for Russell Howard on tour. Uh, me and Steve Williams, uh-huh. uh, who's another very lovely stand-up from the UK, um, uh, are, are opening for Russ. Uh, but it basically means we're we're doing five nights each at the Albert Hall. So, which is going to be, I've, and it's it's sort of weird when because I've opened for Russell at the O2, which is like a six, which is like sixteen thousand people. Uh, and so I went from that, and then my Edinburgh show, I sold an average of seven tickets. <laughs> so it's truly. The, never, the nadirs and zeniths. I've I've had a couple of larger rooms opening for f- famouses, but nothing. Not sixteen thousand. What's what's well, the? How do you even time your jokes around that? Yeah, like, well, it's it's I I have like I have like little directorial notes to myself, and so my note for those gigs was: imagine you're in Kasabian. So just walk out and just be however ridiculous it feels, like be nodding, like, you know, arms outstretched, like, yeah, I'm a rock and roll star. Right. Uh, and that it's just, it's tits and teeth. It's absolute confidence. But weirdly with those gigs, because they've got cameras as well. Yeah, you're, uh, what, you're so, being on the screen. Yeah, so, so you can do you. some really close-up stuff. So so I have uh, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, which means I've got very stretchy skin. Oh, that's right. Um, yes, uh, and so this is a bit that I hadn't done for years. I would have done it when when we were first on the circuit together. I've got very stretchy cheeks, uh, and so I could uh, I would I could show my stretchy face, uh, and the camera would zoom in. So it was this bizarrely I would never have thought it would work so well in front of sixteen thousand people. A close up of my maw. <laughs> can <laughs> you do? Can you pull your neck skin really I, wide? I can too, pull reason. It's the cheeks the that cheek do it the, the best. Most. The other thing that comes with Ehlers Danlos syndrome is that I am a Petermen, uh, which is uh, um, it's uh, it was a French theatrical thing in the eighteen nineties, and there was a uh, there's a film about it that Leonard Rossiter great British comedy actor play, played and I think it might even be called La Petamen but basically you can suck air you can invert your anal sphincter so I can I can I have to Mr. Methane is the most famous practicer of this <laughs> you can fart uh, on command I can fart when I want I'd have to sort of well like, these days as I get older I have to take my trousers off okay. to do it <laughs> but I um, when I was eight I did 164 in a row uh, and then uh, when I was at university, I then did 253 one drunk night. And that's so boring. There was me and my mate. And like, it's because we used to do it as like a little pub novelty. And you could rifle off a quick fire 50 and everyone would laugh. And there'd always be the right moment where you kind of go, I think I've just shit myself. Yep, yep, and everyone, yep, yep, that's, uh... Uh, but 253, that took, it took 15 minutes. Uh, and it was like him kind of coaching me through, like going, come on, you can do this. Get to 200, like get cool, to 250. Yeah. Like cool hand Luke eggs. See, like someone's rubbing your belly, walking you around the bar. Like, yeah. like you're sponsored. <laughs> oh Come on, God. this is for the kids. Um, but I, I remember because you, you used to like, you used to do that on stage as, a, as a bit. Yeah. And then I remember you telling me that Paul Sinha, who was a, still is a very funny comedian, but at the time was, part-time comedian, part-time doctor. Yeah. Was the first one to tell you. Yeah, that's a genetic 
condition you have and you need to be careful because that also comes through like weakened heart muscles yeah yeah it's like a low level connective tissue disorder and, and the oh. further up the chain you go in fact the, the way he introduced it was he said I think you've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome do you have a massive penis that, <laughs> that's the, supposedly the other thing that and... comes with it uh, I'm doing alright <laughs> But it's but again it's more when it's stretchy so so that it's uh, yeah everything has the potential to expand so uh okay so yeah <laughs> so that's a big if yes. i find someone attractive i'm doing all right if i'm <laughs> if i'm struggling to uh enjoy their face then it uh, um it gets, it gets i was gonna say it gets harder and that would feel like a really bad <laughs> pun. terrible pun but but, but you know it's, it's funny with those with those big rooms where because th- this tour is going to be in the round uh, and um, so my mental note, and this is very specific for the British uh, uh, listeners to this show, but it's that my note because we, we've done a, pra- a couple of practice gigs in the round, like in the, small, yeah, in small, the, yeah. There's a venue in Scarborough where Alan Akebourne tries out a lot of his plays, and that, that's that's got a bit that's in the round. And everyone's sort of going, "You like you're not normally the most confident of performers, and you look so at ease. Why were you so graceful on the stage?" And my mental note had been, "There's a goal that Eric Cantona scores." against Sunderland uh, and, and it's just celebrated its 20th anniversary and he does it it's an amazing goal and he doesn't move he just pops his collar up uh, and just does it sort of just rotates 360 and it looks it looks absolutely amazing so my mental note was you're Eric Cantona <laughs> so these it's but it's weird these those little mental tricks but it's also with a, a, yeah. gig, a gig like that you're because the the crew we were touring with they just finished with Coldplay and they they toured with the darkness so you have a rock and roll sound system behind you right. so you feel like you're in Nuremberg you feel like you're absolutely invincible so as long as you just pause a, lo- a, a little yeah. bit longer than you normally would and there is that thing of when there's if there's 16,000 people and you make a third of them laugh yeah yeah then yeah You've already yeah. got more than five thousand yeah, laughs. Absolutely, back yeah, yeah. Yep, watching the goal celebration, two million views. It's, there's just a like slow cocky <laughs> yeah. three sixty. Yeah. yeah, and I've seen he's like six foot four tall, so he he's an absolute colossus. He's one of the most beautiful men I've ever seen. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Lovely little touch, Brian McClare, delicate chip, and then doesn't mo- just yeah. That's, <laughs> <laughs> It's it, he's imperious, <laughs> <laughs> unfazed. Awesome. Um, oh, by the way, the uh, the previous Bill Gates story was also sent was sent in by also generous donor uh, Justin Broad. Yes, thank you, Justin. And for the many good stories, uh, VJ Thomas sent in the antimatter story. Do we have time for it? It's should we save it for next week? Because we've sure we can tease it for next week yeah we don't want to keep you, you guys have some some sightseeing to do before you catch your flight home yeah, right? we've, we've sent our, we've sent the wife is off at runyon canyon with the kids while we while we indulge ourselves which i think is a pretty good you know if you're gonna do something touristy in this area that beats the yeah. hollywood walk of fame and it's, it's nature it, it makes area. us want to live here this we it, there's been so many but we've been here for like a fortnight and we've been up and down california one of the kids there's a thing in in irvine is it irvine or irvine, irvine yeah. um called pretend city and and it's the kids get to run around, but it's basically like a mini Truman show where what? they can do jobs. So so the adults will sit in a in, in a calf, and the kids will sort of go, "Here's your ticket," and then they'll bring you a bowl. Uh, and then for, if they then spend enough time in the calf, they get credits, and they can they get paid, and they can go to the bank to take out their money. <laughs> so 
it's, what? it's wonderful, but you can almost see the like suburban ennui kick in as the afternoon. So the kids genuinely love it, but it feels slightly nightmarish. Yeah, that it's it, that it is like a mini society. Really... Yeah, well, they can be police people. They can be police men and women. It's like a mini Stanford prison experiment <laughs> yeah. for kids or something. It's, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, like the ones who choose to be the criminals suddenly yeah. find themselves being butchered by the, yeah. the ones who choose to and be police. We went on New Year's Eve, and uh, once every hour, they did uh, a confetti cannon, and you could see the staff had gradually got more suicidal as the day had come along <laughs> as they did their 10th New Year's Eve. <laughs> That's a, I can't believe I've never heard of this. That's a great... Uh, it's a really wonderful place. Next time I have nephews what, What's it called? Uh, it's called PretendCity.org. Free plug for Pretend City. Yeah. Hey, Steve, where can our listeners find out uh, more about you and your work? Like, um, what's your Twitter? Uh, my Twitter handle is... I, I regret this Twitter handle so badly. It's Steve Hall Comedy. So I feel like I should break my bad news on Steve Hall Tragedy. <laughs> But I, I did it. There was a there was a bloke who was on Britain's Got Talent who who was a, do it. He called Steve Hall, right? Uh, and uh, he did. He finished. He did all right with a with a, a set that I didn't feel entirely was necessarily his own. Uh, am I allowed to say that? I've just said it. Uh, uh, this is a comedian. He's a comedian, and he would do. He would play classic old tunes and do the dances that were associated with them. And there's a guy I, I'd seen on you. There's an American comic who'd done that and done oh, like it. Like the evolution of dance. Yeah. Th- yes. Uh, and so it was basically a version of the evolution of dance, but because yeah. he'd become quite popular. And he's, he's a man in his 50s or 60s. Uh, and uh, so I thought I better, ta- I better tag Steve Hall comedy before realising how d- just desperately <laughs> idea-free and, and Ow, completely, it's-, it's far too pragmatic. I don't think it's bad. It's, it's nowhere near as bad as having your first name on Facebook be comedian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll judge the shit out of you for that. But having that at the end of your Twitter handle, Particularly that's fine. if it's combined with a picture of you holding a microphone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the one thing, if, if people, if listeners wanted to spend 10 minutes, the thing, of, the thing that I've been associated with that I'm proudest of that's on YouTube is my old sketch show, We Are Clang. Uh, we've got a sketch. I think it's, under, it's down as First Kiss. Uh, we did a lot of stuff on telly that was diabolical, but our, there's a thing on YouTube that was the, the one thing I thought we really nailed. Clang with a K. Yeah. Yes. Uh, was that? Did you do that on? Was it Al Murray show that you did that? Yes, on? that was. I it. remember that clip. That's um, that's my favourite thing that we've done. I think. Cool. Um, Steve, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. It's, it's lovely. To, it's lovely to see you. Yeah, <laughs> it's like totally. It was yeah. It was a real pleasant yeah. surprise when I suddenly realised you're in LA. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, do go to Steve Hall Comedy on Twitter you can also follow us at Probably Science and you can follow us individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen mm-hmm. uh, and also at Jesse Case and listen to Jesse vs. Cancer the podcast um, you can as we mentioned before you can email us probablyscience at gmail.com uh, you can also find us on Facebook and you can uh, go to probablyscience.com for all of the back episodes and our Amazon link and our donation button. And so, how about this for a promise? Next week we will do the live video we're on Facebook. Do live Facebook live. Yes. All right. Cool. I meant to today and it just slipped my mind. But yeah, we'll You've set it up. You've got the little next... holder thing now. Got the you... tripod. We got the lamp so we can see our faces. Yes, we'll do it next week. All right, we'll do that then. Um, so thank you very much, Steve. Thanks, listeners. Have a great 2017. It's nice to be back. Yeah.